0: the following is a presentation of the force center podcast feed from the center of the galaxy this is the force center podcast feed now it's time for spotlight star wars with your host ken knapsack here we are, Star Wars fans, Spotlight Star Wars episode 109. And let's go back to that Star Wars time capsule. We did it last episode of Spotlight Star Wars. I grabbed the first issue of Sci Fi Universe, the magazine that came out in 1994. We looked at the big article written by Chris Gore that talked about the news. Of new Star Wars films by 1997. Oh, it was the heady days of 1994. We had fun looking back at the speculation, maybe learning some lessons, learning some uh, lessons for ourselves that, hey, we should have seen some of the things that were going to come in the prequels and maybe give us problems as older fans at the time. Uh, And also just to kind of how some of the stuff was already out there. George Lucas did have a handle on a story, even though he changed things along the way. It's a lot of little lessons, and I love going back. And what really struck me this week is well, this past week and a half, the Star Wars world is abuzz because the episode nine cast was revealed, at least uh, the primaries. I'm sure there will be some surprises and some fun little tasty tidbit cameos and morsels along the way. But we have the big names out there. Uh, the speculation has begun officially. Now we know. What will Richard E. Grant be? Will he be a First Order officer? A bartender? A forgotten Jedi? We don't know. We're going to learn all that kind of stuff. Carrie Russell, Naomi Ackie joining the cast with returning names that we know, and in most cases, love. I don't know about Donald Gleason. Do we like Huck's? Actually, I do like Hux. I like him now. I like Johnson's version of Hux a little better than Abrams' version of Hux. I love that uh, Hux is learning. I think at the end, he goes through a little journey at the end of uh, uh, The Last Jedi. He's starting to realize his fist pumping, screaming, on which we stand, uh, speeches uh, that he used to give and we see in The Force Awakens, isn't going to work with someone like Kylo Ren But he may have a path to power Why am I getting off on Huxwell? Why am I going on this tangent? Because that's part of the fun Of digging in with Star Wars And speculating of what is to come We were reminded that again It's boom, the starter's gun has gone off And we are really ramping up for episode 9 So I think it's a perfect time To do part 2 Of the Star Wars time capsule here With this magazine in my hands You hear it? Oh, yeah. This is from my personal collection. Original copy that I picked uh, up off uh, the news shelf. I'm sure the news stand. They're called stands, not shelves, Ken. What I'm trying to think probably would have been like a Walden Books or a B. Dalton Books in the Santa Maria Town Center, which was near my community college at this time. That's right. Cinescape Magazine. The magazine of movies, television, and new media on the edge. Alien 4, Ripley's Reprieve, Inside Outbreak, Godzilla Stumbles. That's right. These are some of the big headlines going on on the top of this magazine. But the cover story in March of 1995 was The Next Star Wars. Looking ahead to the Jedi prequels. That's right. Plus, it had an exclusive interview with FX Master Dennis Murin, a Star Wars mainstay for sure. So, uh, let's grab this magazine off the shelf-, shelf. If you happen to have it at home, well, by all means, dive in with me. I've got some notes here. As we did last time, I'm just going to start looking through the article and we're going to talk about things, things we can learn, things we can chuckle at. This is uh, looking back and seeing its hindsight is 2020, but also seeing how close and accurate this article was. Written by John L. Flynn. John L. Flynn, giving him full credit here. I am not reprinting this without permission, but I'm definitely podcasting without permission to Cinescape or John L. Flynn. So John L. Flynn, if you're out there, great article. Much like the Sci-Fi Universe article with Chris Gore at the helm of that one, uh, that was part of my Star Wars knowledge. Just It was in my brain. Did you read that article? Did you read that article in Sci-Fi Universe? I would bring this into a lot of conversations. This one was very, very similar. John L. Flynn wrote a great article in which he speculated both responsibly, as we like to do here in Fort Center, and wildly, which is also fun to do as a Star Wars fan. The rise and fall of Anakin Skywalker is what he said. George Lucas's space epic continues as the early adventures of Luke's father and Obi-Wan Kenobi take center stage in the upcoming Star Wars trilogy. So, he was putting things together. He was uh, looking a lot, and you'll see it here. And, we'll, and He'll reference it a lot, and we'll reference it. The Star Wars novelizations. The novelization of Star Wars, A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. All three books sitting on my shelf. My original copies that I think I got from a used bookstore. Shout out to Nan's Books. Nan's Pre-Owned Books, and Arroyo Grande, California. So let's take a look, shall we? The article starts with uh, how I think any article covering this would have started if if I was writing it or you were writing it. You know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, 18 years after those first words scrolled across a movie screen, they would fill us with wonderment, awe, and a heightened sense of expectation. Wow. There it is right there, right from the top. Heightened sense of Expectation. The expectation, the anticipation for these stories was building in 1994, as we read in last time uh, here on Spotlight Star Wars, but here in March of 95, which meant by the time this actually hits the newsstand, I'm probably picking this up in like February of 95, Phantom Menace was still four years away at this time. And remember, the previous article, it said 97, and I think there were some of those rumors that turned out to be, well, the special editions. But here we are. And it's so funny, when I picked this article up here to go back and read it, it's been sitting on my shelf, a little display shelf in my living room for a year now. Prior to that, prior to moving to where I am now, this had been in, in, in storage. It's in a very good shape, not for a magazine, from it's over 20 years old here. Pages are all good. Little, little fuzzy corners there, but we're all right. I hadn't read this article in a long time. So when I picked it up, surprised. This article is just several pages of John Elflin just trying to predict what the movies are. There's nothing else to it. Gore's article in 94 had a little bit more a little bit more history to it. It was more just, wow, I can't believe this is happening. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what might happen. This is just straight like, all right, these movies are coming. George is working on them right now. Here's what we and I as the author and we as a team, as a research team, I'm sure, put together. It is complete wild speculation. If there was only a podcast in 1995 for John L. Flynn to go on, and it starts off, it's so interesting, um, Talking about George's writing them, and he expects to film them between 1995 and the turn of the century, which is interesting. That means this article, as you know, was probably written late '94, research put together, and then uh, put hit newsstands in early '95. It talks about the trilogy being set a generation before the action of Star Wars, and has fueled excitement and and ever escalating rumors for more than a decade. Lucas keeps this all tight lipped because he doesn't want other sci-fi franchises to borrow key elements, citing Battlestar Galactica, which I think definitely George had some problems with. But then right here, John Flynn goes into what I think is the meat of the article. He references uh, the Star Wars, the Lucasfilm approved, I'm quoting here, yet drawing from Lucasfilm approved Star Wars canon, the content of the yet to be made movies is not a complete mystery. Which is interesting because we know 95, we're following Zaun's Heir to the Empire trilogy, the Jedi Academy trilogy is out, some comics are there, but there's Star Wars canon is definitely not what it is now back then. And I don't even think it is the deep EU legend stuff yet. That stuff is starting to pop up around this time, but I think it's going to start exploding. Around this time, around the release of the Power of the Force figures. Uh, and the funny, in the in, the, in this Cinescape here, the first page, you open up, it is an ad for the old LucasArts game, Dark Forces. To create the ultimate Star Wars experience, we had to set our sights a little higher. Dark Forces, first-person firepower in the Star Wars universe. Available now on CD-ROM. That's right. That's right. And uh, I, I never played that game. I always wanted it. It had stormtroopers on the in the front. Star Wars Dark Forces. What a cool title. So again, not a lot going on uh, in Star Wars canon at this time, but I think John L. Flynn is definitely drawing a lot from the Star Wars novelizations, which is fair, because that's what I did too. If you're going to have a conversation with old Kenny Napsock about 1994, 1995, talking about Star Wars, I am going to tell you, well, Obi-Wan's brother was Owen Lars. Uh, Leia was raised on Alderaan with her mother there, taking her there. That's why Leia can kind of remember her. All those kind of things, most of it, drawn from the novelizations. A lot of it from the Return of the Jedi novel, and as we'll see here in the article later on, from specifically when Obi-Wan, good old Force Ghost Obi-Wan, sits down on a log with Luke on Dagobah following the passing of Yoda. So that's the first thing there, uh, saying where John Flynn's going to draw a lot of this article from. But then the speculation really gets fun. But also, like the reason I'm uh, doing this time capsule, it's 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 tenfold. There's a lot of ways, a lot of angles on this. But one of the things I love is hearing George's words, reading them, and realizing. I think a lot of times we lose sight of the things he has always said. George is George. He changes his idea. He writes in pencil for certain changing the story as it goes as he sees fit for better or worse and there's some things for better some things absolutely for worse we'll come back to that leia remembering her mother thing i think that's one of the biggest gaffes but i don't even know if it's an error i think george just wanted to go a different direction but the core of star wars what is star wars dna flash gordon serials indiana jones serials Sci-fi, big fights, lightsabers, taking down the empire, it's all part of it. But I always say, and you guys are probably, you probably get annoyed with me constantly referencing this. George said it at the 40th anniversary panel, Star Wars Celebration last year, but in this article, he says it again. I wanted to make a kids film that would strengthen contemporary mythology and introduce a kind of basic morality lucas explained in 1983 nobody was saying the very basic things they were dealing in the abstract and he's kind of referring to the 70s even himself with thx uh, 1138 everybody was forgetting to tell the kids hey this is right and this is wrong and i still think that if you're putting together a star wars story that has to be the core and it's not just an age it's not just 12 and below It's for the kid in all of us and the person in all of us. So Star Wars does have to be fun, does have to be big and loud and have your action set pieces and sequences and cool toys and costumes. All that is part of it. But what is the story you're trying to tell? What is the core? It is basic morality. It is lessons. I think that's part of what it is. Force Awakens, all of our heroes, our new heroes are wearing masks and must find out who they are and make those right choices Last Jedi is about growing up just as much as it is growing old and is also, as we all know, about failure and lessons and doing right and learning from that. Johnson has put a basic morality in there. J.J. and his team did as well in Force Awakens, and I think they'll do it in nine. So while we're speculating about what will happen, and we will definitely, and you should join along, what will happen in nine? Who will Richard E. Grant be? You have to go back to what George talked about. Introducing a kind of basic morality with a personal touch. A lot of George's beliefs are in Star Wars. When Kathleen Kennedy says in that documentary, the director and the Jedi, you know, she wants to go back to what Star Wars is about. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that is that's I think what she's referring to. And that's where I think Ryan brought that in. And I think J.J. too. In this, in this weird Last Jedi versus uh, you know, Force Awakens or yes or no fandom, we forget that I think J.J. did one hell of a job. And I love the Force Awakens. And I love The Last Jedi. And I'm curious to see how they bring it home. But this is the core of it. In the early 70s, we know, but John Flynn writes that Lucas wrote dozens of draft scripts and story treatments inspired by the Flash Gordon serials, and a lot of them of course we know were about uh, what we now believe the prequels, Lucas always said that the original trilogy was like the middle part of one giant movie you had it cut up, and we know about uh, the rise and eventual fall and redemption of Darth Vader was all there for us if you're original trilogy fans but uh, this, this article does talk about how um, George kind of abandoned that idea, fearing the story would bore modern children because it focused on more character development than action. So he goes with uh, the original trilogy, or at least what the idea was. So, goes on to talk about uh, Joseph Campbell, the myths and all that stuff there, but then John Flynn starts getting into just the the fun of what we're doing here. And I love this, because it's interesting. It's interesting because George painted himself into a weird corner with the timelines. It's one of those little things. Sebastian Shaw is unmasked Vader, a very old man with a big old man bushy eyebrows, and we look at that and say, "Wow, okay, yeah, that was Luke and Leia's dad." We get it. He he had been he had lived a life when he turned, and we knew the Clone Wars. Well, they were a long time ago. We knew Luke and Leia were about 18, 19, 20 years of age, right? Roughly when you're, when you're a fan at that time, watching them the first time, you just knew they were, they were kids. They were your group. You, were, you looked up to them. They were your generation. Then, as we know, Lucas starts things and, well, boom. Anakin's not as old as we would have thought. Either was Obi-Wan. Those twin sons and Tatooine did a job on Obi-Wan, and I think I can wrap my head around that canon. But what turned young, spicy, sexy Hayden Christensen into old, bushy-eyed Sebastian Shaw, even with Hayden's eyes over his eyes? It's amazing that, uh, you know, I guess hate and uh, anger, evilness can twist you up and age you quick. But John John Flynn does get it right here. He says early on, this is in 1995, that this this story will be about 20 years earlier in what has been referred to as the Clone Wars. And then Flynn just goes simply into some open speculation about episode one, episode two, and episode three. And I do believe at the time, we didn't know that the episode titles were going to be as prominent. We knew by this time, you knew from watching in 77. All right, episode four. And we now know that is New Hope, but all right, ooh, episode four. We're picking it up as we go. Episode five and six. But it was still Star Wars: It was Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. Even at this time, you know, we didn't refer to it as episode one, or just the new Star Wars. But Flynn's on that. He calls this episode one: The Clone Wars. That's right, The Clone Wars. He begins right there. It is interesting how it talks about here when you're speculating that the Clone Wars we knew were were very important. And this is where they believe that Flynn speculated that young Obi-Wan Kenobi faces his first test as a warrior in the Clone Wars, a conflict between the Republic and outside forces that helped undermine the internal viability of the Republic. So that's accurate to a certain degree there. It also goes to say, again, referring to the Empire Strikes Back novel by Donald Glute, uh, when Boba Fett is first introduced in the novel, he was described as wearing a weapon covered armored spacesuit, the kind worn by a group of evil warriors defeated by the Jedi Knights during the Clone Wars. This is why we think of Boba Fett. As a Mandalorian, even though now we know from George himself, nah, Django just stole the costume. But we now know the Mandalorians exist, what they are, who they they, uh, will be, and uh, maybe when I say will be because we'll find out more about them. I do believe in some other Star Wars material. But it's interesting because Boba Fett, Boba Fett, Boba Fett. We talk about Boba Fett and the myth of Boba Fett and the cult of Boba Fett, and I am on the side of, I'm not a super big Boba Fett fan, but I love how he looks. He is quintessential Star Wars to me. And this, in this little section of the article, is part of that. I grew up having read that Empire novel thinking, wow, who were those warriors? Did they all look like this? And they fought the Jedi? How did this happen? Was Boba Fett left over? So many questions. When the first designs and pictures started to emerge of Phantom Menace, uh, I was shocked that there weren't Boba Fett-looking soldiers. I was expecting that. And I think by this speculation here, uh, a lot of people were expecting that. But when they first started to emerge for uh, Attack of the Clones, I was like, aha, those look like some Boba Fett helmets. What's going on? Speculation was there, but George, as always, changes it just a little bit. I do like, though, that Flynn addresses the fact that Leia refers to Obi-Wan in her message to R- uh, R2 that R2 recorded, uh, General Kenobi. Years ago, you served my father in the Clone Wars. And being years ago, being about 20 years uh, at this point in the Star Wars story. And I, I, I pause here because of the term General Kenobi. We all grew up just... Accepting that, General Kenobi. John Flynn talks about per, Obi-Wan perhaps evidently uh, rises quickly in the service of Leia's adopted father, Bail Organa, viceroy and chairman of the Alderaan system, and is awarded the rank of general. It's interesting to me. We just didn't think of it in the, uh, uh, as we do now, that the, um, that the Jedi taken rank is an interesting quandary. It goes against a lot of what we know the Jedi should be. But Lucas had it there from the beginning, General Kenobi, these Clone Wars. The idea was there. I love the idea now that we question it, that a lot of Star Wars comics and stories, Debra Balaba comes to mind, really openly questioning the idea that the Jedi took rank. But I still think it was there early in George's material, and it was part of what he was trying to tell. But it also could have just been something he had Princess Leia say. There is a talk here, goes into the novelizations about Kenobi and training Vader. Of course, no mention of Qui-Gon. And I do remember having problems with Qui-Gon's existence in 1999 when I see the movie in the sense of, well, why don't we mention Qui-Gon? Yep, that's the, the big challenge for a lot of things in Star Wars. And New Hope. On Yavin Four, they don't say thanks to Jinn or so. In Cassian Andor, we have the codes. We obviously just don't know. There's sometimes you have to make those logic leaps. So yes, there's a lot about Obi Wan meeting Anakin, and the speculation does not have Anakin as a kid. It has Anakin a little older, already being trained, or perhaps uh, as John Flynn writes, simply uh, what as Luke had been told, a navigator on a spice freighter, and that uh, he was already a young Jedi in training. And heeds Kenobi's call to help save the Republic during the Clone Wars. This idea that the Jedi had to maybe choose. Maybe that was it. Maybe Kenobi had to choose. Not leave the Jedi Order, but I'm going to join this fight. Maybe go against a little bit of what the Jedi believe. I don't know, but it's fun because what I'll take away from this is the speculation. None of it has Kid Anakin. Kid Vader. It's already a young adult Vader at this time because... I think the bushy eyebrows of Sebastian Shaw make you think that. You know Vader's age to a certain degree. So if this movie's 20 years prior or so, especially if you think you're starting with the Clone Wars, you're not getting teenage Vader. You're not getting seven-year-old Vader. You're getting already established Vader. Things go wrong from there. It's interesting, though, there, though, uh, th- though, there, there, though, though, <laughs> it's interesting. This article goes to talk about problems on the Republic's capital planet of Aquali. Aquali, uh, Flynn uses it here, is interesting because it shows up a lot. If you watch Empire of Dreams, they go through a lot of the audition process with Mark Hamill and Harrison Ford and uh, Carrie Fisher, Cindy Williams, Terry Nunn, a lot of people reading, uh, Perry King. And, and they talk about Aquali. Uh, that was uh, a name Lucas had floating around for a while ambitious young senator Palpatine manipulating the restlessness and political infighting caused by war uh, promises to reunite the disaffected among the people and to restore the remembered glory of the galaxy. Flynn writes, and this again, this is just he's just speculating, just kind of writing his own treatment for the movies. And it's fascinating how much he kind of gets right without knowing. He plans to use, he being Palpatine, plans to use, this, to use the current crisis, the Clone Wars, to engineer his election as president. But some high members are uh, some members of the High Council are dubious, like Bail Organa, Mon Mothman, and others who eventually formed the Rebel Alliance. Now that stuff easy enough to put together there, but it's pretty on point there. Talk about fun speculation, which is also to me a lesson about why I personally, me, Ken Napslock, don't like to get too much into theories and speculation. Oh, they're fun. Oh, we do them here. But for instance, at other places I've worked, people, hey, could you could you write down your like top three Game of Thrones theories? I got to be honest, I don't have them. I have things floating around my head, and I can have conversations about it, but I don't sit there with any kind of theories. I'm not saying that's a great way. I'm not saying that's a bad way. I just the way I do it. I I look at look at it all a little differently, because sometimes I don't want to be too right, because then I'm not surprised in the theater. Flynn in this article is close so many times which is interesting because it's kind of almost another problem when you're watching it actually play out in theater. Remember, this article, I think I read this article a hundred times before I sat down in the theater to watch Phantom Menace. So it's so close, but it's so far to the point where my expectations were up. Where's the clones? Where's the war? Why do we have a kid Vader? What's going on? Who's Qui-Gon? Years later, I can start to appreciate a lot of this, particularly Qui-Gon, one of my favorite characters. But back then, oh, the cruel mistress of expectation was roaming around my brain. There's some speculation about Luke and Leia's mom, and this is one of my favorite parts. For the sake of uh, this article, uh, he refers to it as, the 1st let's call this woman Lady Arcady, A-R-K-A-D-Y. Lady Arcady, since Lucas has a tendency to pair couples or siblings with the same vowel or consonant. Okay. I was Other than Luke or Leia, I wasn't really fully aware that that's something he did. Uh, and it goes into speculation what that might be, that we'll see the droid, C-3PO and R2, are likely to make their appearance in the new series as Republic government bureaucrats under the charge of Organa, Bail Organa. And then uh, it goes into this idea that while the Clone Wars are going on, that the, uh, Bail Organa, Lady Arcady, um, who recognize they're losing the political battle to save the Republicans, they, they seek a safer base of operations. So, Palpatine narrowly defeated an election for the presidency of the Republic, seizes power through sub, subterfuge, excuse me, bribery and terror. Um, and his first executive act is to order the destruction of or Ghana's party as they returned to Alderaan. So I love this idea. We have the Clone Wars, Obi Wan, Anakin, big fighting, and then the politics of Palpatine rising to power, and Palpatine using all of this to cement himself in power and also getting rid of his opposition. So a lot of that stuff at play. One of the things, and this next thing, I carried with me for a long time when my Episode One speculation was going on goes into what the Clone Wars are. Uh, it says, uh, while Palpatine's power play is clearly defined, and there's some truth to that, what Flynn's saying is there's a lot of Lucas's material, the novelizations, things he'd said, his own beliefs, you can see some of the power uh, play and the politics with Palpatine. The, the politics were already always there. And not just what Lucas was preaching or talking about, but the politics within Star Wars and the rise to power of Palpatine. Uh, It was always uh, a seed there waiting to grow. But the Clone Wars remain a mystery. Few details surface in the books, and even fewer are revealed in the three films of the earlier drafts of the original screenplays. One can conjecture that Jedi Knights are fighting to prevent cloning technology from being used to create a terrible weapon or army that would be used against the Republic. And this is the part that always stuck with me. Obi-Wan, or OB-1, might even be some sort of clone designation, identifying the first clone of a man with the initials OB. A designation that Kenobi later replaced with the name Ben. I loved that. I'm not one for clones. I don't like clones. Ray, if she's a clone of Luke's hand, all right. See how you tell that story. But it's interesting, but not what I want. You know, I don't want Luke to show up. I don't want to clone a Palpatine. But I always was fascinated with that. Again, you don't have Force Center podcast. Collider Jedi Council. Uh, Star Wars Explained Hello Greedo All of our friends in the business You don't have endless speculation In Twitter threads So when I read Obi-Wan might mean OB-1 It was a mind-blown situation For Ken in the mid-90s Wow What if he's a clone? Could I wrap my brain around that? I don't know Episode 1 And this uh, They call it The Clone Wars again A purely speculative title of course Uh, goes into the Clone Wars uh, and how the themes of it would be Palpatine's political machinations, Kenobi's uh, failability, I can't read today as a teacher, Anakin and Arkady's relationship remaining purposely unresolved and central to the drama is a reckless young protege, Anakin, whose innocent and vulnerable nature will be tested by truly extraordinary circumstances. So I actually always... I always felt that episode one and episode two, uh, what we did, could have been scrunched up. I do, you know, like the story of Phantom Menace. Attack of the Clones is, is, is my, my least favorite of the prequels. But if you squeeze those all up, it'll be all right. And this, this, this speculation by Flynn kind of has that. It's a little more adult. But even, I think, within this article, Flynn, and no fault of himself, again, look at the age that we expected Anakin to be, forgets what George is saying. Now, you couldn't have predicted Jar Jar Binks, uh, anything like that, uh, Gungans, and, and, and all that stuff. Pod racing. Uh, it's, you know It's easy to forget. The beginning of the article starts with George saying, I want to write something for kids. Referring to the original trilogy, yes, but that carries over. An older Anakin. Sounds great. Sounds cool if the prequel started with Anakin as he was in Attack of the Clones, older, established, whiny, still growing, I think uh, at the time people would have had less problems with it. But having a kid, a seven-year-old Vader, kid Vader, did throw people for a loop. It threw me for a loop. Now that first poster comes out and you see young Anakin standing there in the shadow as Vader. That's still one of the best pieces of Star Wars merchandise out there. Love it. But to see it play on the screen, If you weren't 7 to 10 years of age, you might not have connected with it. So it's interesting that Lucas went that way, but I think we could have seen that coming. Flynn writes that Episode 2 will be The Rise of Darth Vader. A lot of good stuff in there, and this is interesting because it talks about a lot of stuff here, and I'll speed it up here so I'm not just reading this article piece by piece here, about uh, uh, Palpatine's power. Uh, How Bail Organa and Mon Mothma are a few of the fearless patriots looking to go against Palpatine. And this great line, even the once great Jedi Knights have been slowly supplanted by Palpatine's own Sith Lords and their elite guard. Because uh, like the greatest of trees, the Republic rotted from within through the danger not visible from the outside. That's something that Lucas himself wrote. i read that line again. Like the greatest of trees, the Republic rotted from within through the danger, though the danger was not yet visible from the outside. That was something Lucas really infused into his storytelling in the prequels. It is about that. The Republic crumbled from within. The Jedi Order crumbled from within. Ryan Johnson writing the words for Mark Hamill to say in Episode 8. Talking about the hubris of the Jedi. I think there's a lot of truth to that and connects all the way back to this kind of stuff. Stuff that was in the novelizations. So it talks a lot about uh, uh, the relationship uh, and Vader Falls. The decline of Republic casts a dark shadow of the lives of Anakin and Obi-Wan. In the middle of the story of the new trilogy is likely the turning point in Anakin's life. So they squished it up. And this is one of those ideas, even I still, I still like this idea a lot: that episode two, Attack of the Clones, as we know now, ends with Vader being born. Would have been interesting. I still like that idea. Now, hey, we wouldn't have had the Clone Wars cartoon. We wouldn't have a lot of great stuff. I don't want to go back and change it. But I can get behind this idea. And I think part of that is because this was always kind of in the back of my mind, what Flynn was writing here. That episode two would be the rise of Vader because we know that he's going to go hunt Jedi. I think a lot of people wanted to see that. And that's where that speculation starts to grab onto you. You read in articles like this in 1995 of, oh, we're going to see Vader rise and go hunt Jedi. Instead, he's killing younglings. All right. I understand where you're going to have a problem with that in the theater. If this has been in your heart for a long time, something you wanted to see. Although little is known about Anakin and Lady Arcade's courtship and marriage, we do know that they produce Luke and Leia, but Anakin never knows his children. That we know. That is Right. Uh, Anakin leaves his wife and friends to pursue a new course of study under Palpatine uh, before his wife reveals that she's pregnant. And this is where it cites the Return of the Jedi novel. Kenobi tells Luke 20 years later, or so, when your father left, he didn't know your mother was pregnant. Your mother and I knew he would find out eventually, but we wanted to keep both of you as safe as possible. To protect you from both the Emperor, you were hidden from your father when you were born. I took you to live with my brother Owen on Tatooine, and your mother took Leia to live as the daughter of Senator Organa on Alderaan. A plan to secretly look look at the children uh, would be a major plot point in this second movie, thought Flynn. That is now a famous, infamous little section from the Return of the Jedi novel, and if you haven't read those novels, the original ones, go pick them up. They're very easy reads. You know the plot, so you can kind of Read along almost. You got Blue Five as uh, Luke, of course, in the New Hope novel. A lot of little uh, interesting things. The Return of the Jedi novel has a lot of cool stuff for me, at least from the perspective of Moff J. Gerard. A lot more things in there about uh, what was going on on the Death Star. And this big scene, the chunk, because, and this article does talk about it. It says right here, when I saw, this is Obi-Wan, when I saw what had become of him, I tried to dissuade him, to draw him back from the dark side. We fought, Your father fell into a molten pit. I've been reading that my whole life. That was in the Return of the Jedi novel. So Revenge of the Sith, it was great to finally see it. But I don't blame Flynn or anyone, including myself back in 1995, wildly speculating that that fight would happen in the second episode and that Obi-Wan would rise. Excuse me, Vader would rise. Obi-Wan wouldn't. Flynn writes that, of course, audiences already know that, he, that Vader survived the pit, but to Obi-Wan and the others, his death appears certain. Obi-Wan retrieves Anakin's lightsaber and bids farewell to a good friend. Unbeknownst to the Jedi below him in the fiery pull of death, a scorched hand reaches up for life. So Luke has decided to do it a little different. Obi-Wan watches as his friend burns to what he believes death. <laughs> it shows that Obi-Wan, he's got a little, little dark side to him, too. They talk about Flynn talks about how the movie would also need kind of a Holy Grail Indiana Jones and the uh, you know Holy Grail type of feel to it, Uh, not Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but Indiana Indiana Jones and that 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 MacGuffin of of what are they searching for and that Palpatine. uh, could do that and talks about Lucas's second screenplay for Star Wars completed in January of nineteen seventy-five. The primary plot device was the search for the Kyber crystal, which we now know a little bit different. It's different. This becomes the plot of Splinter of the Mind's Eye, Alan Dean Foster's novel and the de facto backup sequel to to A New Hope if they needed to make a cheaper version. We know that now it's part of Star Wars lore. The Kyber crystals are a lot different now, even spelled different than this one, the K-I-B-E-R. Uh, also occasionally spelled as K-A-I-B-U-R-R, now more, what is it, K-Y-B-E-R. It's not a spelling contest, it's Star Wars. Um, I like that idea, that that's going on, Palpatine's searching for that, some sort of power. And again, going back to what we talked about, his 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 Sith Lords and their elite guard, Sith, we don't, even, even in 1995, we weren't quite sure what Sith was. I think Zahn started to touch upon it a little bit, um, you know, Zahn and putting together Heir of the Empire, one of the Nogri, which is r- r- what Rook is to be the Sith. The name was the Sith, and that Darth Vader was the literal Lord of the Sith. So we didn't know. So I like that Flynn's throwing that in there, part of the speculation here. Palpatine's rising to power. Maybe his royal guard is actually Sith. And We now know later on, now we got the Inquisitors. Could that have been a, kind of a similar concept? Episode three would be the Fall of the Republic, there is a foreword to A New Hope, the, return, uh, the, the novelization of Star Wars. It says, says, Once secured his office, he, Palpatine, declared himself emperor, shut himself away from the populace. Soon he was controlled by the very assistants and bootlookers he had appointed to high office. It's a little different. I think Lucas, Lucas's vision of that changed. Uh, Palpatine did shut himself off. We know that between Revenge and the Sith and uh, the rest of the trilogy. Until he dies, you don't see Palpatine much. Good old Sheev is hidden. Uh, a lot of propaganda shows a different, younger Sheev. Even though we know that he reveals himself to be incredibly scarred after his t- attack in Revenge of the Sith, he kind of was buried away. Maybe get some surgery, you know? HollowNet News just showed a vibrant, younger Palpatine. So that stuff's true, but I think Palpatine was always in control. He's always had a plan. But I think he put people in place, Tarkin and, and the like, to run the galaxy for him. I do believe that was the, uh, something that he, he did do in, in, in canon that we know now. And that Vader's going to, his lapdog, his enforcer. Uh, but episode three, The Fall of the Republic, writes Flynn, you know, could be about that uh, and the implication of this passage for the novelization of Star Wars. Is that Palpatine himself faces an internal struggle to maintain, maintain control of the Empire, which is interesting. So that goes on that uh, talk about Anakin's transition and that suit keeping him alive. A lot of stuff there. Uh, And then there's uh, some great stuff about how the plot of the third movie would involve Anakin, perhaps, excuse me, Obi-Wan, perhaps with Yoda rescuing Lady Arcady, we now know as Padme, and her two children because they were in danger, in danger for the Emperor, and maybe from Vader, who by this time may or may not have known. Because, as we know, the Emperor knew as I did, if the Anakin River any the offspring, they would be a threat to him. Uh, so a lot of it has uh, possibly the third movie ending, the last of this prequel trilogy, ending with Obi-Wan slipping through the Emperor's defenses and rescuing Skywalker, writes Flynn. Leia and her mother then go to live in Alderaan, and the safety of Bail again is still a powerful family, while Obi-Wan delivers Luke to his brother, Owen Lars. This is an interesting thing. Possibly stopping first on Dagobah to bid Yoda farewell. Uh, because, as we know, when, o- when Luke arrives on Dagobah, he does tell R2 there's something very familiar about this place. And that was another one, along with the Obi-Wan thing. This was another one of my favorite parts of this article that I would hold on to. The sense that Luke had been on Dagobah before, and that he felt a connection there. Now you could say it was the force, something about that, something more cosmic. But this idea that this young super force influenced and infused kid, a lot of Midi Chlorians pouring through Luke, steps on a Dagobah and Empire strikes back and is like, ah oh, deja vu? Been here before? I like that idea. I always like that idea. It's also interesting because the big, quote, plot hole that people love to play with, and it's fun, we love doing Star Wars counseling about it, is Obi-Wan and Yoda and Bail Organa at the end of Revenge of the Sith think it's perfectly fine to take young Luke Skywalker to live with his family. That's the Lars family, but not only uh, did Shmi Skywalker... Rest in peace, marry into that family. Uh, Anakin spent some time there. It might be the first place to look. Now, maybe it's so close under Anakin's nose that he wouldn't think. Uh, maybe he they knew Anakin. I still think they did. Anakin doesn't want to go back to Tatooine that much. That Maybe it represents something. Loss of his mother. Some of the life that he doesn't want to connect to because he might turn his back on the dark side. And he just doesn't want to do that. I don't know. There's a lot of things there. And I also like the idea that we know him as Luke Skywalker. He definitely identifies himself as Luke Skywalker, particularly to Princess Leia. But, you know, for years he could have been Luke Lars. I like that idea too. But I like this ending to this third movie. I think it's interesting. And closes with the movie. Uh, uh, the, movie cl- the article closes with the movie, ending uh, with Vader failing to secure his children and wife, knows that he and the Emperor are vulnerable, and the Empire are vulnerable, that a new hope is out there. Continuing Lucas's morality tale for children, the new trilogy could end with Vader alone and fearful of the future, his power within the Empire unable to save him. And I actually think that is very accurate, that Lucas does get to that in Revenge of the Sith. I think Revenge of the Sith ends with a lot of hope. I think it ends with, uh, every time I watch Revenge of the Sith, even when I was afraid to admit that I liked it, You know the music plays. John Williams pulls back his old scores for Luke and Leia, and I always wanted to put in New Hope right after it. Bail Organa takes Leia to Alderaan. We end on Tatooine. Owen and Beru looking off in the twin suns. I actually like that ending. It got me excited. The last we see Vader, it's with a younger Tarkin Emperor Palpatine. Vader now learn he's learned to walk staring out at the uh, not-yet-completed and still-a-long-way-away-completed Death Star. I think you can lose the end, the true end of the movie for Anakin, for me, is him laying on that operating table while a lot of uh, medical droids fix him, put legs back on him, Palpatine watches in the sidelines, black cowl over his face, And that beautiful shot, I've talked about it before, but it is one of my favorite moments of Hayden Christensen, not Sebastian Shaw, as it would be later on, Hayden sitting sitting there as Anakin on the operating table, burned, bloodied, bruised, broken, being put back together, writhing in pain while his wife is dying at the other part of the galaxy, giving birth to her children. And I don't believe Palpatine stole her life, life source. by the way. Life force. I love that moment when that mask comes down. Even though we know at some point he would take that mask off. In his, in his, uh, his chamber, his meditation chamber. Uh, I think that moment at the end of Revenge of the Sith. When Anakin's eyes go big. Confused. Perhaps scared. What is coming down on his face. And we see the mask... We see what he sees, kind of that red computer vision type of screen. That's the last time Anakin looked out with his own eyes until Return of the Jedi. From there, it was always Vader, even when he had the mask off. Even when General Veers comes up to bother him. And I think that is the end of the Anakin arc. You don't have to worry about him saying, no, about Padme. Yeah, it's not my favorite moment either. But I do like the Emperor cackling, all that stuff. Them staring out of the Death Star—that's a nice end to know that, hey, this is where the story's going. We know how it goes. But it's that moment when the mask comes down, and Anakin's eyes go wide, fearful, pained, scared, angry. That's the end of Anakin, and the morality tale that Lucas has told for three movies. It comes to that point. And that's why I think Flynn's very right. Continuing Lucas's morality tale for children, the new trilogy could end with Vader alone and fearful of the future, his power with the Empire unable to save him. I like that. I think he got it right. I think that was good speculation. The article ends right there. In a few years, his speculation will evaporate as Lucas brings his new movies to the screen. Men and women raised on the exploits of Luke, Leia, Han, and Darth Vader will now take their children to see the early adventures of Anakin and Obi-Wan. Until then, impatient fans of the saga will hope that the Force is with them, writes John Flynn to close out the article. I didn't have any kids at that time. And hey, well, I still don't have any kids at the time. I don't know how many of you took your children to the prequels. I'd actually be very curious uh, of that perspective then. I was in a little bit of a different generation, still part of the first Star Wars generation, but I was still a kid myself, all of... Uh, 22, 23, when I saw The Phantom Menace. And it did let me down. It did. I'm always honest with that. Prequelist now. Believe in it now. Love the stories, love the characters, love the moments, love the lessons. But a lot of times I sat there, because I saw it eight times in the theater, feeling as though it missed. And a lot of the reasons I think it missed was this article. Not John L. Flynn's fault. It's a great article. But I wanted this story, wanted this, and that is the danger of expectation, the danger of wildly speculating. Do it, but don't hold on to it. Let the creators tell these stories, and I think you'll be rewarded. It doesn't mean they're always going to get it right. Don't ever assume that. Don't, don't think that that's what I mean. Don't think that's what Joseph, Joseph and Jennifer and I mean. I just think I've seen it. We've been around long enough to read this article in 1995 and then wonder where Lady Arcady was. and <laughs> Why are we on Aquilae, Where are the Sith Guards? And then also seeing things so close, so accurate, that I felt like I'd seen them already. Episode 9, the speculation has begun. We're going to dive on in, but I'm going to keep myself back just a little bit this time around. Not that we're not going to discuss these things here in Spotlight Star Wars or Force Center at large, but I want to going to episode nine, potentially the last of the saga films, though we thought that in 2005, and hell, we thought that in 1983, but potentially the last of the Skywalker saga, last of the saga films, from there on out, it's all different, right? I'm going to try to go on this one with an open heart and an open mind. Now it's time for a listener memory. We do this thanks to you guys on Patreon, our Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash Force Center. Put posts up there every now and then saying, hey guys, share your Star Wars memories. I like to read them and react to them as well. I think you'll find that no matter your generation of a Star Wars fan, no matter where you were in the world the first time you saw the movies or where you are now, we are all connected by the Star Wars saga. Alden Diaz writes, My first Star Wars memories uh, were of seeing Phantom Menace on home video while playing with those, uh, these walkie-talkies of Vader and a Stormtrooper walkie-talkie. But the first true, quote, experience I had with Star Wars was Attack of the Clones. Alden writes, I was born in 1995 when this article was out. So it was the first one, Attack of the Clones, I was able to fully enjoy in a theater. Alden writes, I was blown away. When Mace Windu said the immortal words, this party's over, and sabers ignited around the entire arena, my jaw was on the floor. So Alden would be about seven, same age I was when I saw Return of the Jedi. He goes on to write, follow that with the epic charge of all the Jedi toward the battle droids, and I couldn't believe what I was witnessing. It was a true movie magic night for me, and it was topped off by Anakin dual-wielding sabers, an underrated moment in Star Wars, I was so, and then marrying one of my first on-screen crushes, Padme. Aggressive negotiations indeed, Alden writes. I wish I could relive it through my six-year-old eyes, he writes. I think that's a great memory, Alden, and a lesson, a lesson for a lot of us, that I think it never hurts to have over repeated over and over again. Your experiences with the movie might not be another person's, including my love of The Last Jedi might not be your experience. You might have reasons, good, valid reasons in your heart, in your good, true, and honest heart. You don't like it. And I have to respect that, and you have to respect mine, but also the experiences. I've said Attack of the Clones is my least favorite of the Star Wars movies, but there's things in it I love. And that's part of becoming a, a prequelist. Oh yeah, 3PO gets his head replaced with a battle droid and that's a horrible sequence there. Uh, Anakin and Padme don't have the chemistry that I would have liked and would have hoped for Anakin and Lady Arcady. Um, But the Battle of Geonosis is great. Lucas's camera work, some of the shots and the clones fighting the battle droids. The appearance of the clones, long awaited. They do kind of look like Boba Fett, Mm, Jango Fett. Mm, That would make some sense he's got the gear. I guess the Kamenans uh, just said, hey, we like your gear. We're going to also clone that as well. Make it a little different. All that's there. And the Yoda moment, which we've talked about a lot here. Yoda fighting Dooku. And Anakin, yeah. Dual-wielding lightsabers. That was pretty damn cool. We had got Darth Maul with his double-bladed lightsaber. We needed something even more cool in this one. So we got Yoda fighting with the tiny little lightsaber. And we got Anakin. Two-fisting. Like he's drinking beers at a frat party. Two lightsabers fighting Dooku. That was pretty damn cool. And if you're six years old, I absolutely agree with what Alden's saying, and that's the lesson for me. I sat there in 2002, a little burned by the Phantom Menace because things I wanted to happen didn't happen. I was watching Attack the Clones with a little squint, like, all right, George, win me back, win me back. And I remember coming out of Attack the Clones and telling a friend of mine, that battle, man, some of those shots made me feel like I was on the playground again. I want to go play Star Wars. Because I was six and seven when my fascination with Star Wars really came in. And here's Alden experiencing something similar. And I think Alden's right. I wish we all could relive Star Wars through your younger eyes. It doesn't mean that the knowledge and sarcasm and cynicism that sometimes dumps into our brains later on in life is all bad. It fuels a lot of comedy. My comedy, nonetheless. If you watch my old schmoe's movie news, it's me and my sarcastic, cynical best. I don't have a problem with that. I don't always want to watch the things through the eyes of a child. We're supposed to grow up for a reason. But I think we lose sight of what brought us here. Lucas telling a morality tale for children. If we're Star Wars fans... Can't forget that. Listen to Alden. He writes several times. I was blown away. My jaw was on the floor. This was a true movie magic night for me. And that was Attack of the Clones. Alden, I'm glad you got to enjoy Attack of the Clones in 2002 as a six-year-old, and I'm glad you still enjoy it now. I'm sure you watch things in Rogue One and Solo and Seven and Eight and go, man, that makes me feel just like when I watched Attack of the Clones for the first time, just like there's things in these movies now, particularly Rogue One and Solo that just make me go, man, that feels like Return of the Jedi Empire and A New Hope. Star Wars is generational. Sometimes those different generations reside within us. Make sure you connect to your original generation of a Star Wars fan the first time you saw it. Don't, don't forget to dance around that. Spotlight Star Wars for the day. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed this Star Wars time capsule part one, part two. It's just me kind of reading an article. I hope it's not too rambly. Hope you guys enjoyed the journey. Let me know and share your feelings with me using the hashtag Spotlight Star Wars or going to the Facebook page or our Instagram page and leaving a comment letting us know, letting me know what was in your star wars time capsule when you go back and look to the heady days of 1995 where was your head where was your expectations what did you want to have happen in the phantom menace and did it happen did it come close and let's not forget we are all ready for episode 9 and let the speculation begin comma responsibly as always, we'd like to close the show out with a special in memoriam. And Alden, I'm going to dedicate this one to you because, well, it's from Attack of the Clowns. We'll see you, see you all next week on Spotlight Star Wars. Fate and fortune can turn on a dime. You could be seconds away from becoming a hero for all time, yet end up being a footnote. History will remember him as almost saving the day, but we remember Coleman Trebor as the Jedi Master he was. Jedi Master Trebor died in the Petronaki arena during the Battle of Geonosis. The Clone Wars began that day. Many died and most of the names have been forgotten. But Coleman Trebor is a name remembered for what might have been. With the first battle of the Clone Wars raging, Trebor jumped onto the viewing balcony and seemed to catch Count Dooku unaware. The leader of the Confederacy of Independent Systems was watching his droid army rout the Jedi and clones. He was smug and prideful. A fallen Jedi turned secret Sith. And he was nearly dead. Trebor ignited his blade, one that he had carried with him since he was a youngling that had found his own kyber crystal during the gathering ceremony on Ilum. Green and fierce, the timeless weapon in Trebor's hands was about to turn the tide of the war before it could stretch out any longer. That Trebor would take this chance, be so direct and be so bold, should not surprise anyone. Coleman Trebor was a strong individual. Born on the planet Sembla, Trebor was part of the Verk species and was the only Verk ever to become a Jedi. He was one of a kind for sure, but that only meant he was alone among thousands of Jedi attempting to make a name for themselves. Trevor rose to the ranks and achieved the honor of being named to the Jedi High Council. Known for settling interplanetary disputes without bloodshed, he was also well-connected and well-liked in the galaxy. He made an impact for living beings everywhere. But it was all over in a flash of two blaster bolts. In his haste to potentially end the war, Trevor lost sight of Django Fett. Fett drew, shot, and Trevor took two shots to the chest, fell from the balcony, and died. He was that close to saving the day, seconds from being a hero for one action. But to us, Coleman Trevor was a hero for a lifetime of unique and bold service to the galaxy. Thanks for listening to Spotlight Star Wars on Force Center. Follow us on Twitter at Force Center Pod and follow Ken online, including Twitch, at Ken Knappsock. Consider supporting Force Center on Patreon at patreon.com slash Center. Go to forcecenterpod.podomatic.net for more information and use the hashtag Wars to join the conversation. Until next time, this has been Spotlight Star Wars on Force Center.